It's Thursday, October 30th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. I am alone in studio today, but on the phone from Toronto, longtime finance writer, editor, and author Jonathan Chevreau. Uh, you may have read him in Money Sense magazine, The Financial Post. Uh, he's doing some writing for Motley Fool Canada as well. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking a few minutes. Hey, it's great to, uh, after listening to you all these years, Chris, it's, it's really quite a thrill for me to uh, talk to you. Well, let's uh, jump right into one of your areas of expertise, something you've written about for a long time, and that is retirement. Um, because it's, it's it's something we don't really focus on all that much on market foolery. And I, I, I'm curious, when you look out at the landscape today, uh, when you look at people who are trying to save for retirement, um, where do you think we are right now in North America? Because uh, on the one hand, the economy in Canada and the U.S. seem relatively strong. On the other hand, it seems like every couple of weeks there's yet another story or a blurb that I see about how people just aren't, on average, saving enough money for retirement, and they're not even close. Yeah, well, you know, I think the word retirement should itself be retired. I mean, the word has been a marketing bonanza for the financial industry and we in the media but as Michael Kitke has argued in his blog last week, and I'm, I'm writing about this on Friday in my own blog at independencetoday.com, uh, I think we need a better term. Actually, I think it should be financial independence. That's what Michael thinks. And I call, certainly up to independence. I think we shouldn't be planning to do nothing in old age, but we need to be preparing for extended longevity. I think the problem is that people think they want to retire because they're exhausted from too many years of nine to five. What they really need probably is a sabbatical, mini-retirement, semi-retirement, or if they're really that unhappy with their jobs, a wholesale career change. I don't think we were put on this earth to watch daytime television or play golf all day. (laughs) Besides, 30 or 40 years is a long time to go without a paycheck. And especially with defined benefit pensions going the way of the dodo and interest rates are near zero, I think uh, you have to stay engaged with, with humanity and with the workforce well into your 60s and 70s. Well, it's interesting because I remember when I first got out of college and uh, maybe a couple of years out of college, sat down with a financial advisor, um, and this was uh, 25 years ago, uh, one of the things I was told was, hey, look, you need to have a plan to save for retirement, and and you, you want to have a mix of stocks and bonds. But by the time you retire, you want to be almost completely in bonds. But that seems like a mistake now, particularly with people who are maybe retiring in their 60s and then are going to live another 20, 30, 40 years. Oh, I think I've always thought stocks should be, uh, I mean, retirees especially need the stocks with the dividend income and the growth and the dividends and the, the underlying capital gains. And here's an interesting thought, too. People say that women are slightly more risk-averse than men, but of course, as you know, women live longer than men, so it's women that should definitely be investing in stocks, and I'm talking 60% of their portfolios, you know, right to the end. I mean, as, as far, we have something like the Roth account in the States called the Tax-Free Savings Account, and uh, to me, there's no excuse for not just taking that dividend income and uh, and then pumping it back into a lot of the picks that you guys and, and we write about. As I mentioned, you have written about finance, investing, retirement. You've written about this for decades. I'm curious, what has been the biggest shift in your thinking about investing? Well, 
I mean, it, 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 this topic about retirement and investing. Uh, I mean, I think I thought about retirement. Uh, I, was, I thought I think I thought I wanted to retire because I wanted to carve off enough time to do what I, what I thought I wanted to do, which was to get away from the daily grind of daily journalism, where it's always these tiny little hits, and like do something big and creative, like write for TV or uh, you know, or a screenplay or a novel. So you know, big creative projects you couldn't just dash off in a day. So I think for me, I started. Maybe became being assessed about retirement and writing about it as part of my job, really, because I just I just wanted to I didn't want to stop work, working in order so that I could do nothing. It was that I wanted to to you know get my teeth into a real creative project. So I perceived that if I had financial independence and a grub stake that could last you a couple of years, you could kind of quit your job temporarily and go and do this thing. But of course. Uh, if you're going to be a great novelist or great screenwriter, ideally you make a great success right out the gate, and then you take the proceeds from that, and uh, you write another one. In other words, you're you're engaging in a career change. And I think that's my thing about financial independence. You don't have to wait till you're 65 to retire. You can create a grub stake even when you're mid-30s, and, it, and for many people, it's just going back to school for a year or two. You know, some people may be a big business success, and they want to, uh, you know, become a, a preacher or something like that. So you could take a year or two, go back to school, uh, and then when you come out, you're a different person than you were, and you're quite happy to go back to work, but it's a different line of work. Yesterday on Market Foolery, I was talking with Matt Joss. He's one of our analysts in Australia, and we talked about the Australian economy and opportunities for investors in Australia. Let me put the question to you about your country for investors in the United States who are looking at investing opportunities in Canada. Where should they be looking? Uh, one of uh, our colleagues, Jim Gillies, um, likes to talk about the banks in Canada and in particular how they compare favorably in his mind to Wall Street banks, certainly uh, more transparent than the big Wall Street banks. Uh, but I'm curious, uh, what would you recommend to a U.S. investor who's looking at the different industries in Canada? Yeah, you know, Canada and Australia are very similar economies. They're both very heavy in the resource industries. Canada is basically just three sectors. And it's, it's resources, through materials, energy, and financial industry. Uh, we have a few telecoms, hardly any tech stocks, hardly any consumer staple stocks. So basically, an American could buy either the, the, the ETF buying all of Australia, probably from iShares, or the equivalent from Vanguard or iShares, you know, just a, a, a Canada uh, ETF. And then uh, basically, they're going to have exposure to those three uh, sectors. Yes, Canadian banks, I think, as we know, they were very, we're very conservative Canadians. Canadian banks are really conservative. And uh, they pay dividends 3 4%, I think a little more than U.S. banks do. Uh, and, of course, they, got, they sailed right through the financial crisis without uh, you know, basically even a hiccup. In fact, if you just loaded it up, my, my father, the ex-farmer, the, uh, the, the ex-dairy farmer, uh, he thought all he needed in life was, uh, was the milk quota and uh, Canadian bank dividends. And uh, so he did quite well doing those. So that's what I'd say. I mean, any of the banks, the, the, the big five, you know, Royal Bank, CIBC, most Canadians just buy all of them. That, on the one hand, that seems, that strikes me as having a certain amount of security, uh, certainly peace of mind security, as well as financial security. On the other hand, that also seems like it's I don't want to say fraught with danger because that would be overstating it, but it seems like, wow, if there's really just three industries to focus on, that doesn't leave a lot of margin for error for investors who are looking at stocks. 
No, but it most, more works in the other direction. Like at one point, Canada's, our, our equivalent of the IRA, the RSP, we had a 20% and then a 3% uh, limit on foreign content. So most Canadians load up in their RSPs on U.S. dividend-paying stocks. A lot of the stuff that you guys have every day in your recommendations, um, because we had to get exposure to the Googles and the Microsofts and the, the Cokes and the Gillettes and you know, on and on and on. Uh, so it's very important for a Canadian who, at one point, the government was forcing us to invest in this. Canada's only 4% of the world market, and it was only three sectors. So we were really quite unbalanced. They, luckily, they got rid of that about 10 years ago, so we're quite free to go anywhere we want. Um, but we, what we need to do, a Canadian needs to emphasize what we're not getting, which is consumer staples, discretionary, and tech, and a few other sectors. There's not much point in buying U.S. energy stocks, so we, where we got that maybe galore. And we're pretty strong in telecom. We got things like BCE, which is like AT&T, and we got Rogers, which is like your cable company. So we got that covered off. In reverse, for an American, um, I suppose you could, as I said before, because Canada is going to be such a small spot, a small portion of an American's um, portfolio. I mean, you're, you know, U.S. is like 50% of the, the global stock market, right, whereas Canada is four. So you might just as well not even bother picking Canadian stocks, I think, if you're an American, just by our industry, knowing that it's going to overexpose you, relatively speaking, to those three sectors. Now, I mentioned that you've spent most of your career writing about investing and finance and retirement planning, but I want to dig deep in the archives, something you wrote in the Globe and Mail in 1983 uh, regarding a cutting-edge technology at the time, and it was basically cellular technology. So the, here's a direct quote from what you wrote. Because of the current high, high cost to users, the popular notion is that of the high-powered business executive making deals by using a telephone in his car during rush hour traffic. But cellular radio is far more than that. The technology ultimately could replace the ordinary telephone, providing a means of communication that would be as personal as the watch or portable radio. Indeed, one of the offshoot, offshoots may be that eventually each person will have a personal telephone number which could remain the same for life. How, first, how many people mocked you for writing this in 1983? Because in 1983, the idea of cell phones being commonplace was ludicrous. I don't recall getting mocked. But again, it was like one of these stories. You wrote it one day and it appeared in the paper the next and everything was forgotten. You didn't have this. It didn't sort of live on in the Internet the way it does now. I was surprised that piece sort of got dug up by somebody a year or two ago. Um, so, no, I, I think I've been mocked for lots of things, <laughs> but not that. Uh, I mean, I, I think I, basically I was talking about smartphones, I guess. I, I guess I should have started a, a smartphone company and, uh, you know, build, been the next Bill Gates. But uh, obviously I didn't have the capital or the wherewithal to do so back then. Well, you were so prescient with that technology prediction. I am compelled to ask you for another one. <laughs> well, you know... I mean, I, I, one thing is, I think, you know, expert systems and artificial intelligence, I think that's going to be one thing. But I think, that, you know, closer to what we're talking about, I think there's going to be some big extent, big um, breakthroughs in uh, longevity, personal longevity, you know, whether it's people doing telomere research on the, the chromosome. Uh, I think maybe not for the baby boomers that I'm a part of, but the, for the, your younger listeners, um, I think they should be prepared and, and be planning for not retirement, but planning for longevity that could extend, like just make a paradigm shift. Think of what if you only live to 120, 130. 
So if you have a job that you more or less hate and you're obsessing about retirement and you think, oh, just three more years, two more years, uh, don't look at it that way. You weren't put on this earth to, to watch a clock and, and, and do nothing at the end of it. Find your love. You know, get books like, you know, What Color Is Your Parachute? Find your true passion, something that you could do even if you do live to 100 or 120 or even 150. So that would be my prediction is longevity is going to surprise us all. And you and I could have a long conversation about the financial implications of that, but I won't go there right now. God, living till 150 sounds exhausting to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'd have to be happily married, I guess. Uh, if not, yeah, it would, it would compound a lot, of, a lot of problems. But it certainly does call for, I think, back to our previous discussion, significant stock exposure well into, into retirement, particularly if you're a woman. Now, I mentioned uh, folks can read you in a number of places, included the Motley Fool's website in Canada. Uh, so check them out at Motley Fool Canada. But I also want to mention you have a new book coming out. You've written a couple previously, but you have a new ebook coming out next week, I believe November 4th. Uh, tell me about the book. Well, this is an ebook only on the Amazon Kindle. It's called a, a Novel Approach to Financial Independence, How to Reach Your Independence Day While You're Still Young Enough to Enjoy It. So it is really just a workbook for financial plan for teachers who try to teach personal finance to students, even parents with their children, and financial advisors with their clients. It's just a summary, a plot summary of the financial novel I wrote in, in the U.S. book a year ago uh, called Independence Day. And uh, so it's just basically a financial love story, and we try to get in all the uh, all the financial lessons, some of which we've touched on here. But again, it's like let's if we retire the word retirement. A better, more achievable goal for most young people is financial independence. You know, retirement is so far away. It's like you know, in your 60s, it's like being dead, according to my daughter. Uh, <laughs> whereas you can achieve financial independence in your 30s and 40s. Find a true calling. Uh, and then you could be happy to work for 40 or 50 more years in, in something you were put on the earth to do. All right, November 4th, check it out on Amazon. Jonathan Chevrolet, thank you so much for being here. It was my great pleasure, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 